Hey, before we get started with today's episode, I just want to quickly let you know that if you DM me the word audit on Instagram, that's at Ken Westgar, we'll do a quick 15-minute audit of your launch. And by the end of the audit, you'll know exactly where to put your focus in order to grow and scale your next launch. So like I said, DM me the word audit on Instagram, and I'll talk to you soon. Have you ever launched and got nothing but crickets? Or maybe you're on an emotional roller coaster of highs and lows. Well, it really doesn't matter. Hi, my name is Ken Westgar, and I help online coaches grow and scale their businesses with fun and simple money-making launches. In this podcast, we talk about what it takes to run an online business and how you can bring back the fun and simplicity to your launches. You'll get tons of valuable insights and fun stories highlighting dramatic ups, downs, failures, and success of being in launch mode. So make sure you're comfortable and get ready to bench. Welcome to the Omagadam oh Launching Podcast. Hello, hello, and welcome to the Omagadam oh Launching Podcast. I'm your host, Ken Westgar, and today I have uh, Luke with me, Luke Lehman. Uh, welcome, Luke. Hey, Ken. Happy to be here. It's good to have you. Uh, I feel like today's conversation is going to be a little bit different than uh, what our listeners are used to because um, you have a little bit of a different story, and uh, you're also an investor, as we just talked about before we jumped on here. Um, but before we get into that, I would just love you to just give us a quick brief introduction of you know who you are who you help and how you help people well if you back the story up from the end and and yeah. why would i be on a podcast to talk about how we launch is that one of the things that i really found was that our ability to put digital products on the backside of businesses or even enter into a launch methodology was a very high accelerant into businesses that i was investing in so i look at service-based businesses and then when you back that up I've got mm-hmm. about 15 years of entrepreneurial experience or, or more if you count like my first business when I was 14 years old, mowing yards or something. <laughs> but the decade prior to that, I flew jets in the United States Air Force. So I have a uh, background in high performance leadership and and that's kind of how I got into this segment. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I have to ask you, Luke, uh, have you seen Top Gun 2? Oh obviously? yeah, I love it. <laughs> you love, I it? love it? Yeah, it's so good. You know, it's funny because like when you talk about like cops or something that you know yeah. that they that you have to suspend disbelief if you're in law enforcement watching a law enforcement show. So you know, watching Top Gun, there's a lot of things I'm like, oh come on, mm-hmm. you know. There's uh, you know little things like when they're pulling their safe escape and the guy's coming off and he can't see because he's you know blinded by the sun. I'm like, put your visor down, you pig. <laughs> you know, but obviously it wouldn't make for good theatrics if they if their face was hidden by a visor. So um, exactly. I, I was I was uh, suspending disbelief, but I did really enjoy the show. Cool. Awesome. Well, we got that out of the way. But yeah, you you have been a fighter pilot for quite a few years. And I'm just curious to, I mean, obviously that taught you probably a bunch of lessons that you took with you in your life. Um, and I'm curious just to hear what kind of lessons did you bring with you? I, I think that, you know, for a lot of what I talk about now on my podcast or, or mm. when I'm teaching coaching, mentoring, or even just in, in general business ownership is that it's a lot of the components of leadership in high performance that I took out of the fighter pilot world. So the way that we set objectives, the way that we measure and we debrief against ourselves, our performance milestones. So, you know, you have a lot of parallels between business that are like KPIs into the fighter pilot world. We measure everything. So we, you know, when I, when I was diving to the ground, we would say it was 30 degrees plus or minus five degrees. And I was usually at like 31 or 29 degrees. So my performance tolerances were very tight, but Mm -hmm. I think, you know, one of the, one of the things that, especially as I work with larger businesses, so a lot of the folks that I work with are in that five to fifty million dollars of, of revenue range, even a couple of companies up to about a billion dollars of revenue. And 
the bigger you get, the harder it is to start with the end in mind. That Stephen Covey principle. Right, um, right. And, and it's and it's easier when we're starting because it's just us. And we get to mm-hmm. say, here's the next milestone. Here's the next ridge line that I'm going to go accomplish. But as you get bigger, trying to move those things out further and further and further and then get everybody else swimming in the same lane, it really comes back down just to the basics. So I, I spend a lot of time talking about the blocking and tackling of business. Okay. You want to elaborate a little bit more on what you mean by blocking and tackling? Well, yeah. So, so when I talk about it, and, and again, I, I think some of your audience may be just starting out. So we'll try to apply those things and, and I'll, I'll answer it in two parts. The first part is when I talk about casting a vision. So you start with what your business is going to look like in 10 years. One of the things that I notice about entrepreneurs, is they play too small. Mm-hmm. They, they yeah. think that there's constraints surrounding their business and they say, this sector wouldn't work or I don't have the resources or the experience or the background or whatever it is, especially coaches, consultants. They, they say, well, I need to go get some more degrees before that would become possible or a certification or, or something else. And they give themselves the constraints first. And inside those constraints, it makes things become impossible for them in the future. Mm-hmm. But if we just take the constraints off and we say, what would, what would a business look like that supports the quality of life that I want to have? So for me and my primary business, we're growing to be a $90 million business. So we're, we're going to that $100 million mark. And you go, well, why is that important? Because we, we begin to then think and act like a business that's growing to be a $100 million business. So if you play it a little smaller in scale, you say, well, okay, well, let's, let's just say a million. You know, mm-hmm. even if you're looking right this year to go, I want to get over the $100,000 threshold. Why not think about what a million dollar business would look like? And when we cast that vision out to the 10-year mark, we then backwards plan and we begin to start acting. And I know you and I are going to talk. We can talk about the be, do, have type of construct. Right, right. We have to change ourselves first to become the type of person that can have the characteristics of the business that we want. Mm-hmm. So vision, 10 years. And then you come back down to what are we, what are we going to do this year, right? That's the one-year plan, the goals. And then we break them down into what are we going to do this quarter? And then what do I need to do this month, this week, and then all the way down the pyramid to where we get to one single binary action that says, am I going to do this or that? One or zero. And if you can't answer how that specific task connects all the way up to the straight line vision of that 10-year trajectory, then you shouldn't be doing it. And mm-hmm. it's and it's just easier when you're a one-man show or you know, you're just getting started out. It's you and a couple of partners that you're going to go do these things. You go, Hey, we'd like to build a, you know, a million dollar business. And that, that becomes what we think is possible. Mm-hmm. If, if that's, if that's what the ridgeline is for you, then set it out there. The challenge that I would give people is just double it, just double it. Just, just assume right now that you're hundred percent off and you're going to double that thing. Instead of one, it's going to be two. Instead of 90, it's going to be $180 million. And then as we, as we walk it back down the scale, it gets back down all the way to the bottom of the pyramid that says, what am I going to do? Ones or zeros. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think I agree with that. People do tend to think small. I mean, it's a vision. So why not just really think big? I mean, why just stop at a million? You can probably do 10. You can do 100. I mean, sure. as long as you just keep pursuing that dream of having something that is aligned with uh, all of the things that you want to do, I'm sure that you can do it. I mean, We've seen people create 
multi-million dollar businesses sure. all over the world all the time. When I when I talk to entrepreneurs and and I I love young entrepreneurs discussions because they're very pliable mm-hmm. and a little as we get older right we get a little more jaded and we think we know some things <laughs> and we get into this hubris mindset. Sure, um, you know you and I kind of talk about the Dunning's Kruger effect where you, you know you get over the hump and you go oh man I got so much more to learn now. But when I challenge someone to truly think about what can become possible. And then, and then we get specific about the barriers that are actually standing in their way. Mm. We can start carving them away and we can start moving them down a little bit to go, well, that's not, that's not a real barrier. So, so there's actually two components and I talk a lot about this on my podcast, but the, the belief structure, the way that we perceive things in the world, right? So there's, there, there are the events, there's the observations, there's things mm. that happen as true as it's middle of the afternoon in Charleston, South Carolina, there is a body of water there. But that's really, it's absent something because I'm not telling you what that means for me. Mm-hmm. So when we begin to look at the, the language structures, what it means for me is it, it's, a, it's a place of peace. And it, and it, and it makes me feel a, a sense of pride for having accomplished what I have and living in a beautiful home and, and, and et cetera. But without that context of what I'm telling you, you could say, so what? I mean, do you go fishing? You know, you wouldn't understand what that context means for me. So the, the, the belief structures, the BS, right, that, that I talk about a lot is what really impacts people. And, and it's also how I coach myself. Mm-hmm. Why then would a $90 million? Why 90? You know, that seems kind of arbitrary. Luke, why not just say 100? Well, there, mm-hmm. was, some, there was some reasons for it. But even then, the challenge is that that target was created three years ago. And as we're on the path for it, you have to continue to make adjustments to say, is that still the accurate place? And for me, it's, it sets it because it sets the way that we behave. That's it. Mm-hmm. It says we're going to begin to communicate. But you it's actually, not so much about reaching that goal. No, yeah. it doesn't matter. It's arbitrary, no. right? The, the mm-hmm. universe doesn't care what, whether or not I hit the goal. You, Ken doesn't care whether or not I hit the goal or not. My family doesn't care. They don't even know that the goal exists. Mm-hmm. But my business begins to operate in that capacity. So you know, one of the other things that you kind of just brought up, I thought was so salient is that when we talk about removing those constraints for us, one of the things that I always think about is as a child, someone would say, think outside the box, Luke. And that, that became very prevalent inside my adult life. You know, you, you have to be creative with your solutions. And as I began to put together what being in the box actually meant, I think of it very specifically about how we how we affect ourselves. So on the bottom of the box is our experiences. Mm-hmm. That's our, our education, our learning, our upbringing, our, our environment. What, you know, maybe we were raised in a religious com- uh, country. Maybe we were not, you know, whatever it is. It's, it's, it's our experiences that form the foundation of how we got to where we are. On the left side of the box is our emotional state. And I'll come back to that because I think it's one of the most powerful things that we can change. On the top of the box is our values. So that, that kind of constrains us, especially if, you know, if integrity is a high value for you or freedom is a high value for you, it becomes limiting in the top of the box because you say, I, I wouldn't be willing to exchange this for that. Mm-hmm. And I know that you have young children as well. You say, I wouldn't be willing to exchange time away from my children for a $10 million company or a hundred million dollar company. Right. And then the right side of the box is the, your desired outcomes. It's your objectives. So when we define the box, now we can get outside the box 
and, and we can say, okay, what, what can I affect? And that comes back now, Ken, to that emotional state. Because in the emotional state, I can change in a day or even in a moment the way that I perceive the world. So if the box is actually the window into the way that you view the world, I can open and close that box simply by my, my emotional state. So when you're frustrated, anxious, nervous, aggressive, you know, whatever you're feeling that's a negative emotion, it constrains your worldview and, right. and is one of the easiest things for us to be able to fix. Hmm. I love that. It was a great analogy because, I mean, just being able to reframe your thoughts and just be able to be aware of how you're thinking, it can affect so much. Just, you know, the energy that you're putting out, the, the things that you're doing, I mean, everything. Yeah, it's, and it's how you show up as a leader, and that's 100%. that's the the name of the game in anything, is the way that you lead. Some people would say you're always a salesperson, or you're always a marketer. What's your number one job? I say your number one job is a leader, and it's the same thing at home for you. You, you know, as you take your family across uh, the ocean and you come over to the United States and and party in California with us, is that you're leading your family. You're teaching them how to interact, and mm -hmm. it, you know, I don't know how old your kids are, but if they're uh, nine and 11. Yeah. So, the, so they speak English now, right. As they kind of oh, get yeah. into that age and, and, and it's a great opportunity for them to practice with native English speakers, but mm -hmm. you're teaching them how to grow and you're teaching Absolutely. them how to interact. And that's, that's the name of the game for me is how we lead others. And, you know, for me, my mind is my mission statement is just to leave behind a trail of better humans. Mm -hmm. And I, I focus on that. So how I, how I face the world is, it's necessity for me to show up each day as the best version of me. And that's that, that right there is probably the one thing that I think is the biggest challenge is that it's only me versus me. It's not me versus you. You and I aren't comparing to each other. It's me versus me. And if I can make this day a little bit better than yesterday and mm -hmm. tomorrow a little bit better than today, then I'm always on a progression of high growth. Exactly. Yeah. I, to I agree. And I see it almost the same way, but it's more of, how can I, you know, help my kids become a better person? Not, not than me, I would say, but how I can help them uh, deal with things that I had no idea about when I was young. I mean, the things that I'm learning now at the age of 40, I mean, it's amazing that I can give that um, knowledge back to my kids at the age of, you know, nine and 11 and how that will set them up for life when they're, in the twenties, I mean, they're way ahead of what I was at back then, and just imagine what, how, the opportunities they will have when you get to that point. Yeah, just amazing. Yeah, I, I think so. Again, uh, one of the things that, on my podcast that I talk so much about is is brain science, and it's the mm. I, I would say that it's probably the life study for me right now, and, and I don't know that it would end because it it becomes this abyss of yeah. depth to have an understanding of how the nervous system and your gut health and your brain all interact. And at the most basic level, the reason I talk about it so much is because I teach persuasion and influence, mm -hmm. you know, make, make no doubt about it that when I'm interacting with my kid, I'm trying to teach them through persuasion. I, yeah. I believe that I have a wider view of the world and that by assuming my view of the world, they would be better off. Right. The, mm -hmm. the irony of that is that my view is somewhat limited as well. Of course, yeah. Compared to someone else's view of the world. So when you look at the brain science, and, and again, it, it's so important. It, it affects everything that I do. It affects the way that I engage with others. It affects my empathy level. It, it affects sales and marketing, the way that I communicate 
but you know, at the root of it, there's, there's really only a couple of the brain components that we even really care about. The amygdala as part of our reptilian brain mm-hmm. is really our fight or flight mechanism. Yep. And then as it interacts with our reticular activating system, which is a, a very awesome concept, is that it releases certain hormones. So we have serotonin and dopamine and adrenaline that get released that control a lot of those emotional responses. So the brain is, you become aware that you're competing with yourself because your prefrontal cortex and the front part of your brain, your left and right brain, as you know, it is your logical brain Mm -hmm. and it it needs to be satisfied, but it's competing with your reptilian brain. You know, your, your old portion of your brain that's designed to do one thing, keep you safe, keep you safe. Yeah. That's it. You know, so, so when we're, when we're battling that and, and you now can talk to your children or your clients as you're engaging them as they're going through a launch and you can say, which, which part of your brain are you activating right now? Is this your prefrontal cortex or is it your, your reptilian brain that's being activated right now and you're trying to be safe? Mm-hmm. Are you afraid to spend money on ads? And, and you know, that kind of gets into the other component of fear that, that is such a powerful discussion as we get into fear and becoming aware of what those fears are. Mm-hmm. Um, and I can kind of tell, I'm happy to share that story as well, but as we kind of get into it and you go, what are your fears so that you can become aware of them? And then when they become manifest in triggers that you can now do something with them in a positive capacity. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know. I would love for you to share that story, but um, um, fear is definitely an interesting thing because I did uh, this exercise of, um, you know, if you say, what if, you know, you, we tend to go to the negative stuff, you know, what if this doesn't work out? What if people don't buy you know, it's usually negative, and that's just how we write. But I wrote down 10 what-if possibilities of, you know, how could things actually happen for me in a great way. Maybe I could, you know, build my dream home. Maybe I have a million-dollar business. And all of that come, it came from, you know, what if I launched my beta? Because I've been holding off that for a whole year. Mm-hmm. But when I started looking at possibilities, what that could actually trigger and get started with that beta, suddenly body responded in the same way as we do when we have fear, you know, tightening in chest, uh, sweaty palms, uh, beating heart, all that stuff. Um, but my brain was in a totally different place. It was right. excited. It wasn't fear. But the emotions was exactly the same way. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think that's important to note. And, you know, the fear discussion, and, and I'm happy to go there. But before I do, you know, you're your exercise there, I think is such a powerful exercise to go. And it goes back to the concept of the box there mm-hmm. is on the right side yeah. of the box is your desired outcomes. If the what ifs are all filled with what if I fail? Mm-hmm. What if I don't hit my revenue targets? What if, what if, what if the, the right side of that box begins to come into the left and it begins to close and your worldview becomes constrained. Right. So by simply making it become, the, you know, the things that we can't change are the, really the top and bottom. Those become the governing versions of ourselves. What got you to 40 years old likely can't change. You have your mm-hmm. own set of learned and lived experiences, your education, your background, and then likely your values aren't going to change. There's some values for you around business ownership. There's some values for you around your family and your relationships and, you know, integrity or, or freedom or two that I mention often. If those aren't going to change, then how do you open your box? Your emotional state and your desired outcomes are the only two. So when I begin to expect success, I begin to expect abundance. When I begin to expect the wealth, I move in a more broad capacity. 
So th- I think that's a very salient observation, and I think that's a great exercise. I, I, I'm guessing that you do that with your clients because I think that's a great, you know, great exercise yeah. to do to make things become possible. But fear, fear is a um, is an interesting thing, and I there's there's a couple of very key influences that have happened in my life that have helped me come to this level of conclusion that I have about fear mm-hmm. and how to do it. And and the the short of it is that. I've been married now for about 12 years, but around that seven year mark, we were having marital troubles, troubles, and we went to a marriage counselor and the marriage counselor says to us, you project upon others, the things that you most fear in life. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, well, that's not true. That that can't be true because I'm afraid of heights and I don't care if anyone else is afraid of heights. Now I I know that as people are listening to this and they're like, I'm I'm sorry, Luke, you said you were a fighter pilot. Yes. And I'm like, yeah, I, I am a fighter pilot. And I can fly at 100 feet above the ground at 350 knots and be completely mm-hmm. fine. But if I stand on the ladder, my knees start buckling. <laughs> so when I hear this and I hear her say, you project upon others the things that you most fear in life. And I, and I got present to that. What was being manifest in my own marriage at that point was a frustration associated with my wife. My wife's an author and she was writing a book and she um, wasn't completing it at mm-hmm. the pace that I that I thought right. she should complete it at. Mm-hmm. And I would get frustrated. And and then I did what we all do. I should on her. Mm-hmm. You should do this. You should do that. You should consider this, right? And it was then that I got very quiet and said, what's happening? What's what's coming up for you? So the next influence was uh was Marissa Peer, if you're familiar with her in the United Kingdom. Um, and Marissa Peer put it very eloquently when she said that there's two things that people fear most in life. The first is the fear of inadequacy, and the second is the fear of judgment. And at the root of all those fears is when you can then figure out what's going on with yourself. So, you know, maybe there are some fear of heights and spiders and some other things, but when I really come down to my own entrepreneurial endeavors, it's not judgment for me. Because I mm-hmm. truly do believe that it's a it's me against me, and right. and and I am my own worst critic. I don't. I am not externally referenced. I don't necessarily care what someone else thinks. I guess that's kind of as I'm saying that quite a limiting belief there because I it is judgment. It's just my own judgment. But for me, it's inadequacy. Is mm-hmm. that I don't want to be inadequate, and then I compensate for that. Mm-hmm. And and the way that that happens in my life is I compensate through hard work because that was the identity I had growing up was that if you mm-hmm. want it, you have to work th- work for it. Well, I'll tell you what doesn't become a $90 million business, working for it. There's not enough hours in a 40-hour, 50-hour, 60-hour work week or whatever 24 times 7 is for me to be able to outwork enough to get $90 million. So I have to then change to the type of leader that I'm going to become that's going to grow the type of organization that grows to $90 million. So parking those fears and getting present of those fears of inadequacy and judgment is truly what was the breakthrough catalyst for me as a leader because I I see them clear as day right now when I get angry and I get frustrated with my children or my wife mm-hmm. or my employees and I look at it and go, what's the emotion that's coming up for you right now? Go back to the box, right? If I'm in an anger state, I've closed my view of the world. So I look at that and go, what's coming up for me 
Is it inadequacy or judgment? And then do I need to go deeper to figure out where that cause is coming from? I mean, yeah, I fear of judgment was a huge thing for me, 100%. So I know where that's coming from. Uh, but, you know, as you work through it and you get aware of it, it's uh, easier to handle, obviously. But I think one of the biggest things for me on that thing was the inner critic. I know you and I were at uh, Business by Design Next Level event, and we worked through that right there. And uh, those two days working through the inner critic stuff, that was some really powerful stuff. It really helped you shut down that inner critic that's telling you, you know, that you can't do it. You're useless. You know, you can't. Yeah. I mean, that was amazing. You you know, Ken, I mean, the challenge that I have, my children are a little bit younger, just, just by a couple of years, eight and six. And, and, Mm -hmm. um, it's, it's a very, it's a very hard dichotomy to solve as a parent because many of the things that I tell my children are designed to keep them safe, Mm -hmm. physically safe, right? Don't do this. Get in line. Stay, stay this, do this. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And it's designed for safety. But I mean, can, I wouldn't blame you for feeling those feelings of an inner critic that, that it can't be done because the entirety of your whole life You've been told not to do that. You've been told yeah. to stay in the box. Yeah, and, and unfortunately, and we do it still to this day, you know, to our kids, but it, we're a little bit more aware of it. Well, we are, but. and it's a dichotomy because you want to open up the world of possibility to them, but you also mm-hmm. have an obligation as the parents to keep them safe and healthy and happy and fed <laughs> and all the things that, they, you know, I, I think they still have an expectation for a roof over their head and food on the table. Yeah, and it just means that we obviously care. You know, it's not that the other way around. But obviously, they also get confronted with a lot of, things that's emotional, you know, it's not just about the physical things that's happening. That's right. I mean, kids are being bullied, you know, it, it, it's just the way it is. It's always been like that. Mm-hmm. And that's also something that we got to try to protect them from. But I think that's more of the things that we are talking about right here today that could actually help them. Yeah, that's right. I love it. Hmm. But um, I, I'm curious though, how did you go from, fighter pilot to building multi-million dollar businesses by accident, <laughs> by accident. <laughs> you, you know i i think that much like many folks is that i always had an entrepreneurial spirit and mm-hmm. it's interesting now because i watch what my peers are doing and, and i just i i can't do that it would i would not be able to function and i and i did for a while after i got out of the air force i went to the airlines and i flew for delta airlines and i was a pilot here mm-hmm. in the united states and and every time I closed the door of the cockpit, it was like closing the jail door hmm. because it, my, because my mind closed and it was so constraining when I wanted to be thinking so much bigger. So an entrepreneur's bend or bite was almost a necessity for me, but I started my first business now. And, and this isn't fair, Ken, because, because I've, I've truly had businesses. I, you know, I, I told you I mowed yards when I was 14 years old or, right. or younger, I think. Uh, at 15 years old, I, I worked at the golf course and then I changed that in for an entrepreneur route. But like the first business that I said, I'm going to start a business was actually the business that I have today. That's an eight figure defense contractor, you know, in the mm-hmm. United States. But, but I started that wanting to be a coach and I thought that I would teach executives how to debrief using the fighter pilot mechanisms. And, and it's, and the irony of it now is, is 10 years later, it's still what it comes back down to. But what, what happened then 
was those fears of inadequacy and judgment. Because as I walked into this first meeting with a CEO, I didn't feel like I had the level of expertise and the depth of understanding to know what that person was going through in order to teach them something. Right. I made it all up, Ken. Mm -hmm. I made it all up. There, there was no truth to that. And I delivered a phenomenal service and I gave a lot of expertise and I didn't actually need to know what was going on at all in their business to be able to help equate those skills back to what I was teaching. Mm -hmm. But I abandoned it very quickly. And, and as I look back in hindsight, it was fear of inadequacy, not judgment. Because the person on the other side of the table wasn't telling me anything about my level of performance. It was my own, mm -hmm. here you go, limiting belief, right? It, it, potentially it was judgment because it was me judging myself on that. But it was a feeling of inadequacy that said that I can't do what I want to do. Mm -hmm. And I stopped. And, and that right there, it, it, you know, at 40 years old, 41, as I look back, is the single impediment for the failure of every single thing that I've done in my life. If I, if I have quit on something, it's because of a fear, a fear of inadequacy. And I'm not saying, I'm not saying completing something because, because I completed my journey in the Air Force. I did that, right? I, I walked that from the version of, of what I wanted to complete and have for myself. So I wouldn't call that quitting, but the other things that I've quit mm -hmm. and just stopped doing was almost always self-induced. There was nothing in the environment that would have precluded me from success in that endeavor. And that's probably the way it is for a lot of people. I mean, it's, it's only you who's getting in the way, most likely. That's right. Unfortunately. Unfortunately. <laughs> uh, we also talked about um, you being an investor, and we talked a little bit about this before we got on, um, how you help people go through a launch um, through investing. Want to share a little bit about that? Well, yeah. So one of the things that I look at, so I, I, I love service-based businesses. So, you know, I, not manufacturing, you know, not products. I like services. And when I look at services, one of the hardest challenges is client acquisition. And business owners spend so much time doing client acquisition, client acquisition, client acquisition. I'm of the, the opposite ilk. Mm -hmm. I think that once you've already got the clients, you need to get more money from them which means that you need to provide more value and more service to them. But, right. but once you've already earned that rapport, you've moved through the no like, and trust model, you know, and it's, it's ironic because I do consider myself a very good marketer at this point, but I'm really a strategist. And that's, I see things for business owners that they don't yet see as possible. So mm -hmm. this, uh, you know, we were kind of given this example of a recent launch, again, about a 30 year old business, so very mature business, very solid service. It was an information product that's been delivered via mail and fax before email advent and is now um, yeah. being delivered digitally. But simply going through the process of saying you're leaving money on the table because you're not meeting the needs of your customers. They have a higher need that you're not fulfilling yet. So let's figure out how to box that up and let's figure out how to put that into a, a, a product. And I'll skip to the end of it. It was a $160,000 launch. So a very quick launch. Now, a pretty warm list. There was 500 members of the, um, of, of the information product before that. So I think the uh, average price was, um, 
something like uh, $999 a year or something like that for the, it goes out weekly, you know, whatever it is, it's a forecasting right. product. But, but we were able to generate $160,000 in seven days. And the one thing that stood between the previous business owner and that $160,000 was belief. Hmm. Just didn't believe it was possible. Wow. And told himself a lot of stories about, well, this market wouldn't work. This mm -hmm. segment doesn't have that kind of resources. And I'm like, you know, it's a business to business. I'm like, I'm like, what segment? Business? You know, if they're not making money, they would cease to exist. They're in business. And I, and I know it's a, it's a commodities market. So I do, do know there are some constraints there. But, but the market wasn't telling him there were constraints. He was telling himself there were constraints. That's mm. interesting because I've, I've worked a lot of years in retail as store manager and area manager. Um, and I've definitely heard something similar with uh, all of the store managers that I work with as well. You know, oh, well, in this town, you know, people don't buy this and they don't do that. And all these self proclaimed limiting beliefs that they have about their own town, their own uh, people in the city. You know, it's, it's so funny because it's not really that different, you know, from city to city. I mean, most people yeah, are yeah. in general well, the same. Yeah. So sure. Like, but th there are some things, right? So when I go back to the belief statements and I say there, there is a body of water there. Yes. There, there is a body of water there. It's the, mm -hmm. it's the Wando river, whatever it is in Charleston, South Carolina. Um, I think it's the Wando. I think the Cooper River's on the other side. I guess I should know my geography better. Um, if I was in Northern Europe, there may be some things that would not be. Oh, here, here's a good one: Denmark. They love mm -hmm. that stupid ass licorice, right? I, I mean, Jesus Christ, that stuff tastes so bad. You probably couldn't sell a lot of licorice in the new, you know, in the United States because we don't have a palate for for licorice. But right. you know, there's you know a better analogy is it's Charleston, South Carolina. It's uh, you know, any given day is 95, 95 degrees with probably 85% humidity. It's hot. You probably should not sell jackets in summertime right. in Charleston, sure. South Carolina. That is true. And well, I can't say that's true, right? Because I, because I don't know that's true. When we take it at face value and we say, this is our observations. We say, I, this, this wouldn't work for me as a strategist. As a teacher, coach, and mentor, I go, well, let's look at that and let's figure out, is it true? Mm -hmm. Would people never buy jackets? And then who, who would your target audience be? So yes, a storefront on King Street in Charleston may not be the best delivery mechanism for you, but how about an online store? Mm -hmm. Is there warehousing space? Do you have access to a vendor? Can you get some type of specificity or agreement with a with a manufacturer that you can get a specific relationship to do dealing in the area, right? So, so when we break it apart and I say, okay, what's your observation? The relationship, and this is again, I talk a lot about linguistics and the study of language because I think that language is so empty in the way that we communicate. We just and you and I are speaking in English, but. But even English is so empty. And there may be some words that you know that are not English. That you, and I think there's some actually some German words that are very good that are better descriptors, 
better descriptors mm-hmm. of a feeling or emotion associated with an event. Right. And I, and I can't remember the, the word right now. But but when we slow down and we apply and we look at what we're making that mean, the language structure has three components. It's a cause, a, an effect, and a complex equivalent. So if you're asking me for my belief statement about something, what's my observation? You need all three parts of that belief statement, cause, effect, and complex equivalence. So the first piece of it, the cause and effect, is an if-then statement, because this, then that. But even that is speaking in a deletion, distortion, or generality, because the next component of that is what does it mean for me? And the example that I always use when I'm teaching is, uh, if I were to say, my day is ruined, mm-hmm. and you go, tell me more, Luke, and we begin to back it out, and we and the, the fully formed belief statement would be, my daughter didn't brush her teeth on time, which made us late to school, and my day is ruined. Okay. <laughs> well, now at least it's a fully formed belief statement. And, and, you know, you're laughing and your audience is laughing because you're like, well, that's ridiculous. Like your, your day is not ruined because your mm-hmm. daughter didn't brush her teeth. But we do that to ourselves. We create these observations and then we make them mean something. And then we back it up with our stories and we live into it and we hold it true. It's mm-hmm. why hypochondriacs can actually manifest real illnesses. A physical manifestation in their body, their body begins to shut down because of the belief structures that they have. And then they hold it together in their reality. And I just say, Ken, if your body and your mind is that powerful, why not just choose the alternative? Exactly. Why not just choose to be healthy and wealthy mm-hmm. and have deep and loving relationships? And then we begin to move in that direction. Yeah. Yeah, that is 100% true. I mean, the mind is incredibly powerful. And, um, Unfortunately, we not that aware of it, so that we can live in that you know positive environment all the time. But um, when you get to start working on that, and you start to get aware of all this stuff, amazing things will happen. That's right. Uh, is there anything that you feel like we left out that you want to mention? Oh man, we we all? got deep <laughs> I mean, into it, Ken. You know, <laughs> one of the things I just I've, I've really enjoyed um, getting to know you and watching your journey and your level of intellectual rigor that you apply and, and the way that you teach coach and mentor other folks. So I, you know, I, I fancy anyone in your audience fortunate to have the opportunity to engage with you and interact and, and learn from the way that you're um, growing your business and the way that you can help others people. So I, I'm appreciative for your leadership in the community. Thank you. I appreciate that. Uh, where can people find you or, you know, work with you or any kind well, of, I certainly so. welcome them to, to hop on over to the shift work podcast but also you can just go to lukelayman.com and there's all kinds of links to social media and I love engaging with folks on social media as well. Awesome. We'll link up everything in the show notes so people have something to click on. And um, thank you so much for spending time with me today. Uh, it was a really interesting conversation. I think we dove really deep into some really deep stuff. So appreciate that. Thank you. You bet, Ken. All right. And thank you to everybody who's been listening in this week. Thank you. Take care. Thank you so much for listening to the Oh My God, I'm Launching podcast. Now, if you like this episode, I would really appreciate if you left a review over on iTunes. And secondly, head on over to Instagram and connect with me at Ken Westgar. That's K-E-N-W-E-S-T-G-A-A-R-D. And drop me a DM and tell me all about your launch. And I'll catch you in the next episode.